0: My name is Dave. Uh, I have been a member here at Joy for a little over two years, uh, and my wife and I attend. Um, I'll be reading the, the scripture passage today from the book of John. It can be found uh, on page 907 in uh, your pew Bibles under the chair in front of you. So I'm going to read John chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 14. and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples got into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for. Uh, the wonderful way you weave together this story. God, thank you that this book is a history book um, that we can read about the the real and true physical account of your resurrection. God, thank you for how you've cared for the disciples, how you've uh, simply made them breakfast. Um, God, I pray that you will prepare our hearts uh, in this time for worship, to hear your word, uh, to apply it to our lives, uh, to hear about how you've defeated death forever. God, I pray over Larry as he speaks. I pray that Um, You would bless him and and guide him and and, um, compose him. Father, I I pray that you would um, help us hear your word uh, and worship you in this time. God, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
1: Is, is all this talk about feasting, is that making you a little hungry? Um, food food has a very powerful and profound impact uh, on our lives. Um, even, even the thought of a smell of a particular food or just the thought of a taste of a food can bring back uh, very fond memories of, of places or people can make your mouth water even as we're just sitting here with no food present other than these little crackers in front of me. Uh, Many of us perhaps can remember a first date with a loved one, a spouse, and perhaps uh, our minds go quickly to the food that we enjoyed on that day or night. You like veggie pizza too? It's amazing, it's meant to be. We both like veggie pizza, gluten-free now. Uh, food matters. Meals are full of significance even beyond the, the physical sustenance or the pleasurable tastes that we enjoy. Uh, one author uh, has put it this way, few acts are more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. Uh, Our English word, actually, for companion, I'm not sure if you know this, but it comes from the Latin, uh, two Latin words, uh, cum, and then that means together, and then the word panis, which means bread. Uh, So uh, food has the power to cultivate intimacy and friendship, but sadly also food or the withholding of it can convey uh, hatred and rejection. It's really a sobering thing to consider that some of us even gathered here this morning can remember a time when restaurant doors had a sign in the window declaring, no blacks allowed. Food, as I said, it has, it has great power. And food provides a context for helping us to understand the resurrected Christ and his relationship uh, with his Disciples. It's really somewhat amazing. That's one of the things that stood out to me as I considered this passage that Dave read a few minutes ago that this this death defeating Savior, this King, condescends to use food to instruct us about our relationship with Him. Uh, We're coming towards the conclusion of our study of John's Gospel. Lord willing, we'll finish that study next Sunday. And in this passage, in chapter 21, we're just seeing more of Jesus' encounters with his disciples after his resurrection from the dead. We're told uh, in this passage, both at the beginning of the passage Dave read and at the end, that it was a revelation. He revealed himself to his disciples. It was the third time he'd done so. Speaking of uh, the, the, the appearances that we read of in chapter 20, on what we call Easter Sunday night, he appeared to the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. Then eight days later, he appeared to them again. Thomas was there. And now this is the third time that he's revealing himself. And that word revelation means more than simply like that he physically showed up. This word revelation or revealed is the same word that uh, John uses back in chapter 2 after Jesus turned water into wine. It says he revealed or manifested his glory. And so what we're reading about in this passage is a revelation, a manifestation, not just just an assurance that Jesus is physically raised from the dead, that is true, but this is a revelation of Jesus' glory, of who he is, and what he's come to do. And I think we will be helped to grasp the glory of this revelation by considering it as a revelation of a supernatural provision and of a satisfying fellowship, That's what I'd like for us to consider from this passage. I was bewildered a little bit in studying it. I started reading this passage earlier this week. I was like, well, I'm not sure what to say from this passage. And then as I studied it more, I started feeling ashamed that I had ever thought that I wouldn't know what to say about this passage. Consider a supernatural provision and a satisfying fellowship. Now, again, we're not told exactly the timing of this revelation. We're told it is the third one, as I mentioned a moment ago. That second one was eight days after he had raised from the dead. We know that on the 40th day, Jesus ascended to heaven where he sat down at the Father's right hand. And so this is taking place sometime between that eighth day and that 40th day. And we we know that in the recent past, in the the background of this passage, is that uh, commissioning. We considered it last Sunday where Jesus tells his disciples, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. He said... As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So he's sending them out to be his ambassadors to preach the good news of salvation. Uh, We know from another of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances that he had told, this is in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 28, that he had told his disciples to go on ahead of him to Galilee and he would meet them there. And that's probably why they're now here by the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And as they're waiting there, Peter decides he's going fishing. And some people have interpreted this uh, as a form of of backsliding. Some people are quite negative and critical of Peter here, as if he was abandoning the calling that the Lord had given to him and was just returning to his former vocation. He was a fisherman. That seems a little bit harsh to me. Uh, I guess it's possible Uh, but there's no rebuke, there's no admonition from Jesus when he does show up about this decision to go fishing. I, I sort of lean in the direction of the one commentator that I read that said, even though Jesus be crucified and risen from the dead, the disciples must still eat. Well, that's true, but after a long night of fishing, they've got no food to eat. And it's it's it is hard, as I just mentioned, it's it's hard to know the mental frame of these seven disciples at this point. I, I don't think they've committed apostasy, I don't think they've abandoned the Lord, but I, I think it is possible that they may be feeling somewhat discouraged, maybe unsettled, maybe confused still as to what this what this all means, what this this resurrection means and this sending and now they're waiting for Jesus and, and maybe this night of futility with no, no fish being caught is just an occasion for them uh, being more confused about how they're going to get on without Jesus's physical presence with them. And yet this night of futility becomes an occasion for the revelation of the resurrected Christ as the omnipotent provider of his people what unfolds surely is a supernatural provision is it not verse 4 just as day was breaking jesus stood on the shore right the disciples they didn't know that it was jesus and jesus said to them children it's a a term of affection Uh, we might say today uh hey guys i used to say love you guys i was admonished about that i've gotten that straightened out okay but you you put in a modern colloquial here It's an affectionate term though children do you have any fish do you think now kids let me ask you a question real quick do you think jesus doesn't know whether they have fish or not that was a tough question kids i'm pretty sure jesus knows the answer to the question jesus knows everything i think jesus wants them to tell him that they haven't caught anything and that's what they do you can hear me again it's a very pregnant no That's all, Just, just, no. I don't wanna read into the tone, but no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. A large haul of fish, 153 we're told. And many have speculated about the symbolism and the significance of this word, Uh, This number, 153, it was mind-stretching to think about the different interpretations being given, particularly a very uh, elaborate one rooted in Ezekiel 47. I'm not going to share it with you. I actually, I would if I understood what they were talking about. I think that's just how many fish they happened to catch. And John's telling us because, as Dave said, this is the history of what happened. But either way, it was a large haul, and it was a large haul of large fish, we're told, after a full night of fruitless fishing. This was a lavish, abundant provision, and we're meant to see it, I believe, as the faithful provision of the risen Lord. We don't know whether he had sovereignly sent the fish to the right side of that boat at just that point. I mean, we're pretty sure that a, a group of fishermen would know to not just keep their nets on the left side the whole night. Like They probably did check the right side at some point. Maybe he sovereignly sent those fish to that right side of the boat at that point. Maybe, since he is the one through whom everything was created, maybe he just spoke a word and created a great catch of fish for them on the spot. Either way, this was the work of Christ. And it was a reminder to the disciples that even as it pertained to their earthly needs, let alone their spiritual fruit and the success of this commissioning that Jesus had given them, It was a reminder that apart from him, they could do nothing. If if you're familiar with the other gospel accounts, the other narratives of Jesus' life, it's hard to read this story and not recall one recorded at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's not in John's gospel, but it's in Luke chapter 5, right? I guess I said at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, after, again, a long night of no fish catching Peter and James and John they were in the boat and Jesus said try there and they said we've been laboring all night but if you say so and a huge catch of fish so I think that's why I think it's the memory of that previous occasion and on that previous occasion if you remember that had a commission attached to it as well because after that great catch of fish Jesus said to them from now on you're gonna be catching men this is a little picture of the mission I have for you. So now, with a mission that they've just received, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, and this great catch of fish, they're thinking, hey, hold on. This guy's on the beach. That Maybe his body is a little bit different, and they can't recognize him. Maybe it's just that he's 100 yards away, and it's daybreak, so they can't see clearly yet. But they realize that's no ordinary person on the beach. It's Jesus. It's, it's the Lord. And the big lesson for us is that just as Jesus had been the supernatural provider of his disciples before his death and resurrection, so he will continue to be their provider in their physical and spiritual needs. And in the exercise of that commissioning to go and catch men, to go and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. When these disciples had come to land wet and cold, Weary and hungry, they found a nice fire to warm them and dry them and fish and bread already prepared. Did you notice that? He, told, he, he, he provided them a great catch of fish, but then when they got back to the shore, Jesus already had fish that he was grilling for them. Maybe to show them, I'm sending you to do work, but I don't need your work. He is pleased to use us. Our work in catching men is indispensable. We must go and we must preach. We must serve. We must sacrifice. But apart from him, we can do nothing and he really doesn't. He will provide the catch in his perfect time. Jesus is the good shepherd. Whether we're thinking about the call to go and make disciples or whether we're talking about the provision of our basic everyday needs, Jesus is the good shepherd preparing a table for his disciples. He cares for the needs of his weary Discouraged disciples, and he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that means yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is always a king who serves. Jesus told his disciples that before he gave his life, Mark 10:45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And even after he served us so richly and amazingly in that way, he just continues to serve. They, they get to the shore, they sit down, and it says in verse 13, Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. Jesus made them breakfast. I just want to say that phrase for like an hour till maybe it lands on. Jesus made them breakfast. He's waiting on them. Do you think Jesus doesn't care for you? He doesn't have time for you? Jesus made them breakfast. He is ever the host. He is ever for his people, ever ready and able and willing to come to our aid and to do so in abundance. We see in the resurrected Jesus a God who is committed to serving us. Isaiah 64, 4, from of old, No one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. He who did not spare his own son, if he didn't withhold Jesus from us, but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us, graciously provide for us all things? The cross where where Jesus died for our sins and the resurrection where we are assured that the wages of our sin was paid in full bring us face to face with a Christ who serves. Even though we might have to wait to see all the wisdom and goodness in his providential provision. The, The disciples... I mean, this was a great moment. Can you you put yourself there and this great catch of 153 fish? But that was after one long night of weariness and discouragement and waiting. They toiled and they toiled fruitlessly that long night, but it was just the dawn of daylight that would soon arrive and bring the joyful wonder of a catch that they couldn't hardly have comprehended. I wonder if, if it feels to you, Christian brother or sister, as though the night is dragging on. I, I prayed about that a few minutes. You know when I'm praying, I'm just, the first three minutes of the pastoral prayer, I'm just praying my sermon. <laughs> I've told you that before, right? Are, is the nighttime dragging for you? The nighttime of, of chronic illness or unwanted singleness? or financial fears or uncertainties, injustices that you have endured that have not been righted, family members who you love so dearly who are estranged from you or estranged from Jesus, or both, career frustrations, pending diagnoses, you've labored, you've toiled, you've prayed, you've forgiven, and you wonder, where is this abundance of provision? Well, uh, of this fruitless night of fishing, uh, Matthew Henry writes this, providence so ordered it that all that night they should catch nothing that the miraculous catch of fishes in the morning might be the more wonderful and the more acceptable. In those disappointments which to us are very grievous, God has often designs that are very gracious. brother and sister, I hope that's of encouragement to you this morning. In those disappointments which to us are very grievous, God has often designs that are very gracious. This story teaches us in the midst of our waiting, in the midst of our despairing, in the midst of our fruitlessness, in whatever ways you may be enduring it, wait, wait for the morning. Beloved, wait for the morning. After you have suffered a little while, Peter the Apostle wrote after this amazing experience. A few decades later, he wrote, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Bible actually does say amen after that. If he has dominion over death, the risen Christ has dominion over death, then surely he has the dominion over all that meets us in life. And so keep on waiting, beloved. By faith in the risen Christ, believe that it will be so for you. And on that day, on that final day, when we come into the fullness of that feast, you will have no hesitance whatsoever in declaring what it was said of Jesus in Mark 7.37, he has done all things well. As satisfying and abundant is his provision of our needs, even greater is the host himself. Point number two. Okay, that was point number one, a supernatural provision. Point number two, a satisfying fellowship. I, I say this because I, I don't think, and I think you'll readily agree with this, Peter did not plunge himself in. I mean, this is a funny picture. That says Peter being Peter, if you know Peter, right? He's stripped for work. I don't know all the cultural elements of what that looks like. I don't think he was like naked, naked, but he was stripped for work. And, and John says, it's the Lord. And he just <laughs> got to get covered. You know, you don't want to be stripped to meet Jesus, but he just, he just plunges. We don't know if he's just sw- swimming. It might be that the water was really shallow and he's trying to wade back, but he's not that earnest and eager to get some fish from Jesus. He wants to be near Jesus. And once they'd all gotten back to the shore and sat down with him, they were seated at his table, as we sang. It seems they're at the end of verse 12, right? They're, they're in a little bit of a shock, it seems. Did you catch those words in verse 12? He said, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. It's like, so they knew it was the Lord. Why would they even consider asking? Like, if they knew it was the Lord, why would they even think to be asking, who are you? They, there was something amazing about it. They didn't fully, they knew it was Jesus, but they're like, he was Ted. He's a lot, they, they couldn't get it. They got it, but they didn't quite get it. They were, they were eating breakfast with Jesus. There's a story told of a man who took his family on their first trip to Yellowstone National Park to see the great, is it called geyser or geyser? It shows you what I know. I've never been to Yellowstone. I've never been regarded as an outdoorsman. I'm getting different interpretations. Geyser or geyser? Geyser. Okay, guys. Geyser is an old person. I, I did know that, but I just... This provides an occasion for me to take a sip of water. <laughs> anyway, that Old Faithful, you know, Old Faithful. I'm just going to say Old Faithful. Well, they went to visit Old Faithful. And they spent a, an hour afterwards, after they had witnessed the great eruption. I did do a YouTube search, so I, at least I saw that. And uh, they, they witnessed the great eruption. They spent an hour then at the Old Faithful Inn's dining room which has a countdown clock and a a huge glass window so that the patrons can see the eruption even from the inn. And as that clock struck and and Old Faithful erupted yet again, there would be patrons that would gather around that window and they would clap and they would applaud and they would snap pictures. And the the author of this story recounts that he at one point just happened to look behind his shoulder and he noticed that the the waitstaff was preoccupied. They were they were busy. The wait staff, they were just cleaning tables and refilling water glasses and carrying on with their other activities. But he noticed that not one of them ever looked out the window. They had become so familiar with old faithful that its greatness no longer impressed them. And beloved, I pray that it would never be so as we consider the invitation that we have to fellowship with Jesus. To hear Jesus say, come and have breakfast. That would be something for you to talk about maybe after the service this week as you have fellowship is how, how do you, just ask somebody, how do you cultivate that fire of wonder and joy and amazement that you have fellowship with Jesus? Maybe something to talk about while you eat lunch this afternoon. Remember the quote that I read at the beginning of the message. Few acts are more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. Someone with whom we share is likely to be our, uh, someone whom we share food with is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. That was true in the ancient world, the days in which the New Testament was written. That is still true in our own day, that there is maybe not a more powerful symbol of friendship than sharing a meal. Jesus was actually condemned by the religious leaders of his day because he would have the audacity to dine with sinners. That was an accusation they hurled at him. This man eats with sinners. But for those of us who are here today, who have come to see ourselves as guilty sinners, that's no grounds for condemnation, but that is grounds for our deepest praise and adoration. In coming from heaven to earth, Jesus came and he, I have to say this delicately, let me explain myself, he shared with us, he had fellowship with us in a sense in our sin. He entered into, what I mean by that is he entered into the suffering that our sin has merited. In order that we might, by his death and resurrection, that we might eternally share in his righteousness. When all we had in was a share of eternal wrath. You know what, what God's word says in the book of Revelation? As for the cowardly, and the faithless, and the detestable, as for the murderers, and the sexually immoral, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their portion. Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death that's what we have a share in because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God. But Jesus, when we were in that condition, Jesus came and he was willing to share in the suffering that we were due by, becoming, uh, by coming in our nature. Since the children share, we're told in Hebrews 2, in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He shared in our humanity that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. God's word said that for our sake, God made him, made Jesus to be sin. That's what I'm trying to say when I say he had a share or fellowship with us. He, not that he sinned, Jesus did not sin. There would be no hope for us if Jesus had sinned. He did not sin, but our sin was placed upon him as he was treated then as a sinner, enduring the wrath of God and the judgment of God that we deserve, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news. This is the gospel, beloved, that defiant deniers of the Lord Jesus could be washed and cleansed and sanctified and justified before a holy God. We have a picture of it here, even in the fact that it was a charcoal fire that Jesus used to prepare this fish. I know Jason would be bothered if I did not say it. He's looking at me with shock, but he knows exactly what I mean. That many have pointed out, none more important than Jason Tyrell, that the only other place in, not only in John's gospel, but the only other place in the New Testament where a charcoal fire is mentioned is in John chapter 18, verse 18, when Peter is found betraying the Lord Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest. And so you wonder what this... When Peter got back there and he saw a charcoal fire, and he smelled a charcoal fire. What had once been the smell of betrayal was turning in by the grace of the Lord Jesus to be the aroma of mercy and reconciliation and fellowship with Jesus that he had denied. And so it is for all of us here who would repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus. If you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in Christ, We would long, one of the things that we value in this congregation, if you're here as a visitor and you're not sure what you believe, we value being authentic. There's a lot in our culture about being authentic. We want to be very authentic with you and transparent with you. If you're here this morning and you are living your own way for yourself, we believe, as I mentioned from Revelation chapter 21 a few minutes ago, that you have a share right now in a lake that burns eternally with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We understand that to be the punishment that each one of us justly deserves for having lived our life in rebellion against a holy God. And yet what brings us here is not that bad news, but what brings us here is the good news that we've come, that Jesus was willing to become a sinner Not that he sinned, but he was willing to take our sin upon himself that in him we might be cleansed by believing in him, by turning away from living for ourselves and turning and trusting and relying upon Jesus, we might be reconciled to him and that we might enjoy the eternal thrill of fellowship with Christ. That is the great good that we have in the gospel. It is wonderful to be justified. It is wonderful to be declared innocent before a holy God. But that declaration of innocence is really what makes it sweet is that it brings us to be able to sit with him at his table. Jesus is the satisfying fellowship with Jesus is the treasure of the good news. The apostle Paul said that he counted everything as lost. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as, fill in that blank. I heard several words, I think I did hear dung, and this would give me another occasion to speak with the children. (laughs) Kids, do you want to know how precious Jesus is? Yes. I heard somebody say yes. Praise God. It is going to involve dung. Yes. Jesus is so precious that the apostle Paul could say that everything in the world that he had, he counted as rubbish or the word is dung. And some of you don't know what dung is. So I'll just say the word that you know, poop. (laughs) You don't have many occasions to say it. On biblical grounds. I'm not saying it to be crude. And I'm honestly not even saying it to be funny. Because that's what Paul said. Everything in this world is trash. That would be another word we could use. Everything is rubbish. Is garbage. Compared to knowing Christ. That I may gain Christ. That's how valuable fellowship with him is. Jesus said in John chapter 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Paul said, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's another way that we could see how precious Jesus is. That everything that we lose when we die is nothing, it's gain to get Christ. Because when we die, we go to be with Christ. Jesus came, and he came willingly to fellowship with us in suffering. He was willing to lose the eternal heavenly bliss with his Father and the Holy Spirit. He was willing to share in all the common weaknesses and infirmities of living as a human being in this cursed world, in deprivation and poverty and to be scorned and to be insulted and slandered and rejected by people that he had loved perfectly and he endured, he shared with us in all the temptations of Satan and he shared in a painful death and the abandonment of his heavenly father on the cross so that the day might come when us by faith, when we would clink glasses with one another at the wedding supper of the lamb, having come into our inheritance as co-rulers of the universe and we would have the richest, and sweetest fellowship with Jesus. That we would know he knows what it's like to suffer. He does not save us from a distance, but he shared with us in the filth and in the mess of this world, and it will be an eternally enriching fellowship with him because of it. That's what we are coming to enjoy now as we move to the table. We come to enjoy and celebrate together specifically as we eat bread and as we drink from the cup in remembrance of Him. The Lord's Supper preaches. Did you know that? I'm going to stop preaching. I'm going to hold up this very common bread, this cup. We don't use wine, we use grape juice, but I'm going to just, but they preach. 1 Corinthians 11 Paul says as often as we do this we declare we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and they they proclaim that Jesus has done everything needed to save us and to secure us and that he will return again to restore us into his eternally satisfying fellowship to to have fellowship is to share That's what the word fellowship means. It's sharing. Fellowship is sharing with others what we have in Christ. Because of Jesus' broken body and shed blood, he's pleased to call us friends, and he shares everything with his friends. We sing sing the song, Jesus paid it all. We could also sing, Jesus shared it all. He shared his righteousness. We talked about that. He shared his Father. He shared his spirit. He shares his rule and reign. He shares his family. That's what we're doing here, gathered as his family. He shares his inheritance. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in this night, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. He he shares his peace. Right? John chapter 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He shares his character with us. Second Peter 1 says that, that by faith we become partakers of the divine nature. Not that we become God, that would be blasphemous, but that we're, he's working his character in us day by day from one degree of glory to another. He shares with us his joy. He shares with us his home. He says he's going to prepare a place for us. He shares with us his glory. That almost sounds blasphemous if Jesus hadn't said it when he prayed in John 17. The glory that you've given to me, Father, I have given to them. He shares with us the love that he enjoys of his heavenly Father, that the world would know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. He shared it all with us. And so we can say with King David, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. We say that at the table. Jesus did not take on flesh and blood and die an agonizing death on the cross and then get up from death on the third day in order to keep you at a distance. Understand that. He cares for his people you've come to him by faith no matter what you've done that's what the lord's supper proclaims no matter what you've done it's not about what you've done it's about what he has done he cares for his people he loves his people he delights in his people knowing everything about us he wants us to come and have breakfast with him come and dine with me he says his body was torn And beaten and bruised and pierced. And his blood was poured out that we might be seated at his table. That we might enjoy a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine where death is swallowed up. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And so as we prepare to eat and drink now. In remembrance of what he has done and in anticipation of what he promises to still do for us, consider. Consider the great privilege of his invitation and the great privilege of your acceptance of that privilege through faith. I love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such great grace. We thank you for such rich provision. You have provided for our every need. Physically, we've known that. We've had hard times, but we're here. We're clothed. We have food. You give us what we need. Because of Jesus, our good shepherd, we have no lack. But beyond the physical needs, you have provided for us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the supernatural provision and we thank you that amidst all the good things that you give us that Jesus himself is the best thing. Help us to love him. Help us to love him. More love to thee. More love to thee, O Christ. May we know more and more love for Jesus. More and more awe and gratitude for his sacrificial generosity to us. And work in us a greater love for you and a greater experience of your love for us as we eat and drink now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.